I'm just going to warn you right now, I'm going to be gushing a little bit this episode because this is, in my opinion, a really good episode. Easily part of the VHS collection, as I've mentioned several times. This is an episode written by, well, a lot of people actually, but the main one is Brennan Braga. This was Brennan Braga's first inclusion into Star Trek. Um, now, I've actually mentioned this several times that some people have a complicated opinion on Brennan Braga. But I also admit that bashing Brandon Braga, well, that's a weird phrase, is something that became extremely common for many years, mostly because of Voyager and Enterprise. I was never really in that camp, although certainly he does some stuff that is just face-palmingly stupid, and every now and again he just completely fails. This is the same man who wrote, helped wrote Generations at the same time, I remind you, and Threshold. But this is also a man who obviously gives a, a really sincere amount of care and effort into what he does, and really does love writing for Star Trek. This is also the man who wrote All Good Things. And as an aside, what's funny is you're like, well, Brandon Braga didn't write All Good Things alone. No, he didn't. He wrote it with Ronald, Moore, Ronald D. Moore, the same team that also wrote Generations, by the way. And this episode, Ronald D. Moore and Braga actually co-wrote this episode. Now, there's other people who have writing credit, but those two are the ones who were the predominant forces behind the story. This, also, this episode also introduces many things to Star Trek history. Uh, it introduces uh, the Vorcha, which I'll talk about in a moment. The Batleth is introduced. Uh, this is when Ensign J enters the thing, played by the tra the wonderful Tracy Coco. Some of you know who I'm talking about. I'll just discuss, discuss this real quick. As I mentioned earlier, recurrent background characters is an important aspect to television, especially on a, in, in, when you're in the same kind of area repeatedly, over and over. And uh, Ensign J is another one of those characters. She's going to be in a huge amount of episodes from now until the end of uh, TNG, actually. So, you know, that's cool. That's awesome. The Batleth, I shouldn't even have to explain, but this is the first time it's ever introduced and will become basically the Klingon weapon of choice for basically everything from now on. <laughs> so, that's awesome. I could debate the actual value and use of the Batleth as a weapon, but... Smarter people than me have done that many times, so I don't think that's really necessary. The Vorcha is an interesting one. Now, some of you are like, what the hell's the Vorcha? That is the name, that is the class of the Klingon battlecruiser, the one that Kimpek came over on, and Keeler, Ambassador Keeler. Or Kaler. They actually say it both ways in this episode. Anyways, I, make, I bring this up because it's indicative of the situation Star Trek had now found itself in. For the first time uh, ever... TNG now no longer had to shoestring budget everything. Season 4 was officially the moment where Paramount started really loosening the purse strings and allowing TNG to have a significantly higher budget, basically across the board. This was partially in response to the massive pop positive responses from Season 3, and of course, Best of Both Worlds, and the fact that they were well into production of Star Trek VI, and a few other factors, including the fact that you know Paramount was starting to finally turn around financially, and the world in general was starting to pull itself out of the recession that I mentioned earlier. So Season 4 got a much bigger purse, and frankly, so would Season 5 and 6. 7, not so much, but we'll get there when we get there. So they were allowed to do things like invent new ships. The entire reason they'd use the Katinga model, which was hilariously out of date in previous shots, is because it was the model they had. Designing a completely new model and doing new effects and, and camera shots of it, well, that's expensive. But now we have the Vorcha. I don't actually like the Vorcha that much. I much prefer the... 
Oh my god, I can't think of it off the top of my head. The the one that shows up in Deep Space Nine, the other new Klingon battlecruiser. And I actually have always had a fondness for the Katinga. But anyways, but there's one other thing that is added in this episode. Um, oh, I guess there's also Alexander. I actually forgot about that. Let's let's talk about Alexander really quick. Alexander is, of course, Worf's son. And they have occasionally done some good stuff with him. I could think of one episode off the top of my head, which is an Alexander-centric episode, which worked, which did a good job with him. Now, that's from memory, of course, and we haven't really hit any of the Alexander episodes yet in either series so far, so this is kind of the first one to talk about that. I will actually be paying careful attention this time through to, to see if my opinion changes on him, but by memory, Alexander was an interesting idea they never really did anything with. Uh, the one episode, by the way, is the one where he comes back from the future. That's the one I'd be speaking of. So I don't really have a lot of interesting things to say about Alexander because there's not really anything interesting about Alexander. He is basically a one-note character. He is the son of Worf who doesn't want to be a Klingon. That's it. He's basically kind of an inverse Worf. And he's also too old. Even in character, they say that he was... Uh, they should give his age as basically being like three here, although even that's actually inaccurate. And he he he's walking around and fully vocally communicative, and he should be basically a baby at this point. Now I know what you're saying. Well, Klingons age differently, which is entirely possible. Although it's worth noting that his own aging throughout the show is mostly because of the fact that he's actually played by three separate actors, uh, technically four, but, you know, not counting the time travel, he's played by three separate actors over the course of the show, and I think that's the real problem there. I don't have much else to say about him, unfortunately. One other character is added in this. There's an actor named Robert O'Reilly. He's something of a fan favorite. And usually when I bring him up, the reaction's always the same. Yeah! He plays Galron. Some years ago, I was discussing Star Trek with a friend of mine, just chatting about it, because, like you do, you know. And... I came to the sudden and strange realization that Galron was a regular recurrent guest star character in Star Trek for literally years. That Robert O'Reilly continued to come back as Galron for a huge period of time. I decided for the sake of this rumination to look it up. Uh, counting release date and not counting any of the side stuff that came out because he would play Galron and a few other things. Of course, like the Klingon game. That was awesome. I look, recommend you look it up. But from November 5th of 1990 to May 12th of 1999 is when Galron existed in Star Trek uh, continuity. Eight years, if, if my math is correct, eight years, six months, seven days. It's a huge period of time. And it's funny in its own right because it helps to explain one of the reasons why Garon has so much investment from fans. Because this isn't some minor guest star. He is the leader of the Klingon Empire in basically all of his appearances, technically including this one as he becomes the High Chancellor in this one. But what's also interesting to me is that across all of that, he only shows up in 11 episodes. It's such a weird thing, though, but if you think about it, that's a common thing in Star Trek. No, I'm dead serious. How many Borg episodes are there? There's a decent number. I don't have the number in front of me. How many Q episodes are there? Oh, there's a lot less of that. How many Barkley episodes? You get my point? A lot of Star Trek has this weird thing where the really memorable characters only got a few appearances, but they were so good that they feel more than they actually were. We won't even be seeing Garon again for basically the entire rest of the season. 
Anywho, I also want to talk about Kaylor, or rather, Susie Plaxon, who was awesome. Everyone liked her, uh, the actress, I should say, and a lot of people liked her, the character, uh, Kaylor, or Kaylar. Got it. I'm going to try to say Kaylor, because that's what Worf says, so we'll go with Kaylor. Um, I actually have to admit that I also feel like it's a shame they decided to kill her. I get why. I really do. And years and years later, uh, Moore in particular would actually defend the death of Kalar because he felt like it was a really great moment for the fans, a really great moment for Worf. And if you think about it, a pinnacle point in history in ways that's actually hard to describe. We'll talk about that in a second. I do think it's a shame they had to kill her off, though. She was an excellent actress, she was a good character, and a great um, counterpoint to Worf. Every scene between her and Worf in this episode is pure gold. And one of my favorite things is the dynamic between the two involves him basically... There's this scene where he admits, I did not just want to take the oath with you because of tradition. I wanted to take the oath with you because... Well, he doesn't say this, of course, but because he loves her. Because he really believes that she is his mate. And everything that implies within Klingon culture, as Worf perceives it. Remember, Worf effect, or the outsider effect, or whatever we're actually going to... We come up with a term with it. One of you guys came up with a term for it, and I can't actually, can't actually remember it right now. But anyways, so, you know, it's late. I've been working all day. What do you want from me? So, Worf clearly has a legitimate bond with her. And it shows. And that is, of course, why he refuses to take the formal legal connection to her because then she would be legally discommendated just as he is. Now, she admits she doesn't care about that, and he could see that, but he doesn't want that to happen to Alexander. Someday he may want to live on Kronos. He will not get that choice if I take you as my mate, if we complete the bonds together. That is very Worf. He obviously cares about and indeed understands external honor, but at the same time, excuse me, at the same time, he's all about the internal honor. To him, it is more important that his son be taken care of than he gets to be with the woman he loves. There's just something very powerful about that I love. But anyways, so getting back to the actual episode, there's several bits where Worf refuses to speak to her or to his son. And it's funny, she's even like, you know, do you have any questions? I have, I have, there's only one question. Well, do you have to ask? Yes, you do have to ask. <laughs> you could just tell that Worf's like twisting himself up over this whole thing. There's a bit where uh, uh, Kalar is giving a briefing to the others. And she says a line I actually wrote down. I won't bore you with the intricacies of Klingon politics. And I remember my knee-jerk reaction to that was, No, please, please bore me with the intricacies of Klingon politics. I would love to hear more about it. If it's not obvious, I love this episode. It's got Galron. It's got Klingon politics. It's got a lot of continuity going back and forward. This is a direct par- uh, continuation of the episode The Emissary. And these events will matter in the future. Oh, it's also it also directly follows the events of... Oh, God. I don't remember the name of the episode. Like, Sins of the Father or something like that. It's the one where they introduced Kern to the series. So it has continuity backwards continuity forwards, these events will continue to matter for a really long time. We're talking literal years here. Um, 
it's got Worf, it's got Kalar, it's got Galron, it's got Klingon politics, it's got Klingons in general, and I do always find well-written Klingons to be fascinating. It's got some great performances from everyone. It's directed by Jonathan Frakes. It's written by Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore. There's a reason I love this episode. Picard officially moves into the political circles of the Klingons. Now, I've kind of been pointing out how throughout the whole show, inch by inch, Picard has just been getting closer and closer to the Klingons, directly, personally, and politically. This is pretty much the official moment where he is now part of the Klingon political infrastructure, whether he wants to be or not. It's actually funny. Kim Peck shows that he himself is a savvy politician because he very expertly maneuvers Picard into basically saying, yes, before he then gives him all the information and basically requests Picard to look into the situation. In other words, he ensures victory and then offers the possibility of victory. It's, it's an interesting way he approaches it, and it says a lot about how Kim Peck was. So... Note the significance, by the way, and this is very, very interesting for Klingon culture. If Duras wanted to claim the position of chancellorship, all he had to do was walk up to Kimpek, challenge him, formally, of course, in view of uh, witnesses, pull out a sword and attack him, and probably kill him. Boom, he's chancellor. It's interesting that Duras doesn't do that. I kind of wonder if Duras is either a coward or just doesn't think he's that good of a fighter. You know what I mean? In fact, I'm pretty sure the only reason he accepted Worf's challenge at the end is because he would probably lose the loyalty of every Klingon in the room if he didn't. External honor, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me, with the possibility of failure, why not just arrange things properly elsewise? So, he poisons Kim Peck, and he arranged for the death of Gowron. Now, neither of these things go his way, but you can kind of see why he would prefer this route and why he really doesn't belong in Klingon politics. See, we actually get some very interesting characterization for Duras in this episode. I think the best way to summarize it is that Duras is what I, th I like to call a bad politician. Now, I've talked about this many times before, but I don't think I've discussed this in my Star Trek stuff. So on the off chance you haven't watched my other ruminations or streams, I'm going to discuss this very briefly. When I say the difference between a good politician and a bad politician, I don't mean, like, morality. I mean I don't mean, like you know, in terms of whether or not you are a politician trying to help the world or a politician trying to get greedy and fat. What I mean is, a good politician is someone who knows how to politically outmaneuver their opponents. A bad politician is someone who makes blatant, obvious power grabs that only work if they have someone backing them. Excellent example, Final Fantasy XII. Vane versus the Senate. Good politician versus bad politicians. They make obvious, overt moves. Vane completely outmaneuvers all of them. Make sense? So, Duras, bad politician. Gowron, good politician. And we get that even in this episode. Duras makes no attempt to try and sway things in his way other than the two assassination attempts I've already mentioned. He doesn't try to play ball. He doesn't accept the circumstances. He isn't dynamic. He doesn't have the ability to adjust his strategy. And he relies on the backing of Romulans, who are backing him, it's pretty much official as of this episode, in order to accomplish anything. Now, you might be like, oh, you're just insulting Duras. No, I'm pointing out that Duras probably rose to power as a direct reaction of the Romulan influence. 
We learn throughout the course of Star Trek that the Romulan Star Empire, and especially the Tal Shiar, do a whole lot of working behind the scenes in order to maneuver pieces into a position that's more advantageous for the Romulan Star Empire, right? Now, they don't always win. Sometimes they're outplayed. Dominion, excuse me. But they're always trying to move in those directions. Given Duras's lack of combat prowess, remember, even in the last episode, I, I really can't think of it, Sins of the Father, whatever it is, he refused to fight people one-on-one, -on -one, even when it would have actually been advantageous for him as a Klingon to do so. He refused to dirty his hands. This is someone who, by all accounts, should not be in power. Now, I don't mean, like, morally. I mean, it doesn't make sense that he has the political influence that he does in the Klingon Empire unless an invisible hand has been maneuvering pieces for him, specifically pushing him into a position of power over the last several years in order to try and do this. Take out Kimpek, take out the opposition, and now have a puppet. See, that's the value of a bad politician. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say. But the value of a bad politician is a bad politician is a good puppet. He is a copy-paste, he is a textbook example of the perfect puppet king. And tell me the Romulan Star Empire would not want a puppet king on the throne of the Klingon Empire. Right? That's what I mean by this. Some people would look at me and say, oh, you're thinking too much about this. First of all, this is written by Brennan Brog and Ronald D. Moore. So no, I'm not. Second of all, this is... I like to say that the only thing that defines cost is value. I know that sounds like a strange statement, but what I mean by that is, I'm sure at least some of you out there are thinking, well, that's way too much for the Romulans to do for this. The only thing that determines cost is value. In other words, if, if something is sufficiently valuable to an individual or to an organization, then the amount of cost they're willing to accept to take this value increases concordantly. Makes sense? Having a puppet king on the throne of the Klingon Empire is incredibly valuable to the Romulans. And for so many different reasons, I don't even feel the need to go into it. This episode is, is a crux episode, politically speaking, for the entirety of the Alpha and Beta Quadrants. Because, let's be blunt, there are three dominant powers in these areas. I mean, there's other decent powers, like the Cardassians and the... I can't even think of their names. They're not even shown in the, in the show. They're, they're in STO. But it is really about the Feds, the Romulans, and the Klingons. Those are the three big ones. Those are the superpowers. The Romulans have kind of been off in their own little bubble. But they've also had issues because the Federation and the Klingons are allied. Any maneuvering that the Romulans make will be countered by a force they cannot win against. The Romulans, for all their flaws, are not stupid, at least not in the political area arena. So, trying to tr crack a wedge in between the Klingons and the Federation is the kind of thing that would be invaluable to the Romulans. Even if they don't gain the Klingon Empire as a puppet state, which would obviously be the ideal goal, they at least push them away from the Feds, which allows them to start moving militarily, politically, economically, industrially, diplomatically. Make sense? As an aside, I know that the Romulans far more overtly move in this exact direction during Redemption later on in the season, or show. Is that season four? I don't actually remember what that is, but whatever that is, <laughs> just to prove my point, 
And there's a pet theory I've heard a couple of times. Even Sci-Fi Debris mentioned this theory, but I, I first heard it from a friend of mine. I didn't come up with it. The idea is that the Romulans really wanted to politically maneuver the Federation into a point of weakness and were foiled multiple times by the Enterprise in specific, which made them focus on that, and then the Enterprise's connection with the Klingons. In other words, that the Federation and the Klingon connection was not only a large-scale political problem, but an immediate threat to even small-scale operations, and thus was something that had to be dealt with. Food for thought. <sighs> so, <laughs> um, there's this great scene. God, I've, I've kind of lost place in the episode because I just went off on politics there for a second. There's this great scene where Kalar decides to uh, confront Worf about the whole discommendation thing. What I find interesting is Worf doesn't tell her about it, but he doesn't refuse, he just doesn't tell her about it. It's Picard who refuses, and for obvious reasons. This is not my place to tell. Note the smart script construction, by the way. She asks him, it's just a personal matter, not a professional, I just want to know what happened, and Picard says, I'm afraid I can't tell you. And she's like, huh. Keep that in mind. Or I'll just talk about it now. Because later in the episode, there's a bit where they're meeting in the briefing room, and she says, well, why are you so convinced that it's Duras? We have had interactions with Duras. Can you tell me details of that? No. And she gets this look on her face like, huh, Kalar's not stupid. And in fact, the very next scene is her trying to dig up information on exactly what happened and successfully deducing that Duras, for whatever reason, had forced Worf into accepting this discommendation as a political move, basically. Although, let's be honest, it wasn't actually Duras, it was Kimpek, because Duras, as I think I've already explained, has the political acumen of a wet noodle. So, I love how they do that. It's a nice way to show that Kalar is smart, that she can put things together, and it's a nice way to showcase it for the audience, rather than having someone show up and say, Did you know that five years... You know, so. Very well constructed. There's this nice bit where Worf insists that Duras is the Romulan patsy, right? He doesn't say it that way, but you know, that he is the one who poisoned Kimpek. And Picard says, no, I understand that in Klingon law, he is the son of a traitor and therefore is considered a traitor himself. However, I, in, as far as I'm concerned, Duras's only crime was putting that crime on your family. And then Picard's tone drops for a bit, and he says, I will not forget that. And then he gets right back to business. I like that because this and several other scenes show how Picard really does, for lack of a better way to put this, understand the Klingon mindset, or at the very least, Worf mindset, better than most people do. And, of course, Picard is functionally Worf's brother-in-arms in all of this, so he has a bit of a personal stake as well into all of this. He even says at the end of the episode, maybe now is the time. Duras is dead, a death of a, sh a shameful death. Maybe now is the time to go ahead and say the truth, and, and unveil your family's name. Remember, Picard has no stake in that, except for his own personal stake, because Picard cares. He cares personally, because this is, as far as I'm con he's concerned, a family matter, and Picard is a part of that family. Anywho, <clears throat> so, uh, at 18 minutes and 11 seconds, Garon shows up for the first time, he acts a little bit out of character, out of character, compared to how we'll see him in later episodes. You could tell that they hadn't quite gotten a handle on how he should portray himself yet. 
But what's most interesting is Gowron is kind of the opposite of Duras. He's not exactly loyal or honorable or decent, and he's a terrible tactician, as we learn later. But he's a good politician. He plays ball. He knows how to move with the punches, and he knows how to deal with all of this as they go. He is far more accommodating. He is far more willing to play the game. In fact, one of my favorite parts is he approaches Kalar in private to try and bribe her, openly and overtly. I could give you position and power. What is it you want in exchange for slanting this towards me? She says no, and the way she says no makes Gowron smile. Because Klingons, as I've said so many times, and will bring up even again in the future, are all about how you react to them. In other words, he actually gained respect for her in that action. I think his offer was genuine, don't mistake me. But I do think that he gained respect for her after that. That, more than anything else, for someone like me who analyzes Klingons as a culture, would be able to say, Gowron's not the, not the guilty one. Not just because Duras is evil from the past or whatever, but because Gowron behaved like an honorable Klingon in that move. Duras doesn't. <clears throat> so, I'm looking at my notes here. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just have my note here about how Duras is pathetic and Garon is not. Um, I, there's a note here about the Romulan situation. I, I've already talked about that, the complexities of the Romulan inference here. Uh, I've already made points about how Kalar... I feel like I've said all the things I have to say in here. I just kind of went around here. Um, talking about everything. There's a good scene where Crusher determines, thanks to forensic science, uh, that the explosion was actually coming from within rather than from without. I just, it's a very minor point. I just wanted to point that out because it's pretty much the definitive moment at which they learn that Duras was the one who you know, is the bad guy. Or I should say they prove it. We kind of suspected that already. Then Worf shows up and sees Kalar murdered. Now, what's most interesting about that scene to me is that Worf is very Worf. The very first thing he does is he calls for medical emergency. Bam! No hesitation. And he says the exact room, the deck, the section, here, come here, now, go. That is exactly correct and exactly what he should have done. I counted. It takes Crusher 1 minute and 38 seconds to show up. Now... I only point that out because it's probably the one and only real flaw of the entire episode, in what is otherwise an almost flawless episode. One minute and 38 seconds for a medical emergency to show up in, in, in response to war, who is clearly, oh, oh God, medical emergency right now, you know. They should be running or beaming to get there now. And I point that out because Crusher actually flat out states they were too late to put her in stasis which means they might have saved her if they'd gotten there earlier. Now, I know that the writer's intent was to kill her. And I think, really, if I was constructing the scene, what I would have done is I probably would have made it so that she didn't have her final moments. I know that's kind of contrary to television and fiction in general. You know, the dying character is supposed to have their dying words. But truthfully, I think it just does a disservice to the scene. Have Worf cradle her. Her dead body now at this point. This is her final showing on the show. She's playing a corpse. She plays a good corpse. And um, and have Worf just, the, the, the disbelief, the pain as he's reaching out. He reaches for her, her hand. You know, Crusher shows up, scans her, just looks up at Worf and 
Just a quick shake. It's too late, basically. It's too late because she's already dead. Worf does the howl. We've already established that's a thing. Warning Stovacor, or not Stovacor. Um, oh God, I can't remember the name of it. Warning the afterlife that a warrior's coming. Alexander flees. Nice touch, by the way. He, of course, has no idea what the roar is. He just sees his wife, excuse me, his mother dead, and his husband, and screaming. His husband, God, I'm screwing this all up. He sees his mother dead and his father screaming. He's not even sure he's his father yet. And Worf, well, I think his perspective on this should be fairly obvious. Then Worf goes over to him and says, This is the first time you've seen death, isn't it? Alexander says, yes. And Worf says, look. Look and always remember. It's a very powerful line. It's also worth noting that in that line you could tell Worf is accepting the possibility of his own death. Right then and there. We can talk all we want about the rights and the wrongs. Uh, we can armchair argue things. But I've, also, I, I've often spoken in defense of fictional characters because there's a concept called in the moment. We are not always who we really are in the moment. We don't always make the right choices or calls in the moment. We say and do stupid things out of anger or fear or grief. And I feel like a lot of people who analyze fiction forget that being in the moment is a real thing. I mean, the human mind quite literally doesn't work properly when you're too angry, right? I mean, that's a chemical thing we know about the brain. I point that out because I've heard people for years argue that Worf shouldn't have done what he did. Yet, A, it was immensely satisfying, just to be blunt, to watch Worf finally just straight-up kill Duras. No political bullcrap, no net of protection, just straight-up kills him. B, well, to be completely blunt, this action probably in many ways salvaged the situation between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. No, really, think about it. The perfect puppet that they'd probably been crafting for years at this point in time was just killed. Now, there are others, and there will be others in the future. We find this out. But none of them will have had the position and power buildup that Duras had. None of them will present the kind of threat he did. He was very nearly the Supreme Chancellor, or High Chancellor, whatever it is, of the Klingon Kai Council. Think about that. Think about all that effort and work and time nuked. Because that is one of the most interesting things about real life as well as fiction, although usually more true in fiction. It's something I've said many, many times. Political power must always bow to personal power. It doesn't matter how connected you are, how many consequences you build up for, in order to protect you. You can't hurt me because such and such, or you can't come after me because then this consequence will happen. All you need is someone who is sufficiently motivated through anger or through personal drive or through moral conviction or through insanity or through sheer violence or whatever someone who is sufficiently motivated to not care about consequence, to then walk up to you and shoot you, or stab you with a bat left in this case. Worf's personal power completely destroyed Duras's political power, and the Duras Empire functionally fell apart as a consequence of these actions. And all that Romulan investment just kind of... Well, it didn't completely go away, as I've mentioned earlier, and we will see in the future, but it certainly took a big blow from this. There's also a third reason I like this. It's because of the fact that this feels very Worf. I saw some people, back when this episode was still coming out, mostly in like interviews or just chatting around with friends um, and uh, in um, 
uh, God, I can't remember the email email groups, right? We, I was in several Star Trek email groups back in the day about how Worf was wrong for what he did. He, you shouldn't kill someone in cold blood. I find that strange because ultimately I actually completely disagree with that. Duros murdered Kalar and did so just to cover up something that wasn't even relevant. He did so just to hide the discommendation thing, which she didn't even care about politically. He killed out of cowardice and expedience. This is the kind of person who, I'm just going to say this as bluntly as can, should die. And so Worf did so. Now, what I find most interesting is that Worf functionally faces no consequence for this. The Klingons view this as an open and shut case, and they just move on. I'm sure Garon was at least partially involved in that. And, well, as we will find out, there is consequence to this. This will come back in the future. Even into the DS9 era, this will continue to ripple and reminate. Emanate, excuse me. Reminate. Reverb, I think. It's reverberate. Anyways. But there's a scene where Picard just dresses down Worf. What I like most about that scene is there's a bit where Picard flat out says, Do you wish to resign? Worf hesitates. That's the interesting one to me. That Worf considers it. That he considers that this was sufficiently important to him, sufficiently powerful, that he might actually resign from Starfleet. He, of course, says no, because we've got to maintain the status quo. And there's now a permanent mark on his record, which... Honestly, and I know this is just something to mention on the side, might be part of why it took him so long to get to the rank of commander. You can't tell me Worf wouldn't be a good commander, because he is a good commander. We see this on Deep Space Nine. So the idea of this damaging his career so much that he is basically passed up for promotion uh, over and over and over again, up until generations, I guess, actually, kind of makes a degree of sense, doesn't it? Food for thought. I don't have much else to say about this episode. This is a really, really, really good episode. A lot of firsts, a lot of changing in political landscape, a lot of continuity, a lot of great acting, a lot of great writing. Absolutely love it. Thank you all for joining me and gushing about this episode. I'll see you next time.